Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. Royals Talk Plus today. Big ol' assist from our Kansas City Royals yesterday as the Toronto Blue Jays had an off day but looked to keep the Seattle Mariners as far at arm's length as possible. If you were scoreboard watching yesterday, you would have noticed. If you weren't, we'll, we'll update you here. Uh, the Angels got blank 12 to nothing. They are more or less, I think at this point, uh, not a part of the wild card conversation. They are seven games back with three teams to jump. For comparison's sake, the Jays would only have one team to jump, and they are eight and a half back in the division. So if you're feeling like the division's out of reach, uh, then you should probably be feeling like the Angels' wildcard chances are out of reach. Uh, it was a pretty good day for the Jays in terms of who is chasing them in the wildcard. Rangers beat the Angels 12 to nothing. The Braves beat the Yankees 11 to 3. Baltimore won, but uh, I think at this point, you know, like we just kind of said, it's uh, it's getting to be a long one here. Now in Kansas city is where things were most fascinating because the Seattle Mariners entered play only a game and a half back of the blue Jays. Kansas city is certainly an opponent where you'd expect Seattle to be able to make up some ground. As it turns out, Brady singer, Brady singer of all people uh, takes a no hitter into the seventh. He eventually gives it up. The Royals blow the lead entirely. They are one strike away from winning this thing in the ninth. It all unravels. Canadian and sleeper agent Matt Brash then takes the hill for the Mariners in the ninth. And wouldn't you know it, help from some old friends. Samad Taylor enters the game. And with runner with a runner on third, one out, Dyron Blanco lays down a sack bunt. And well, not a sack bunt because it's the winning run. So you're, you're probably not sacrificing there. It's more of a, a squeeze. I think we, we'd call it. And Samad Taylor gets home. We've seen Dyron Blanco lay that bunt down for Samad Taylor a couple times. It is a picture perfect bunt up the first baseline. And Samad Taylor, who was moving on the play, scores. His seventh stolen base of the season uh, came earlier in that inning as well. Uh, Samad Taylor, of course, the key piece in the Whit Merrifield trade. Platinum Max Castillo was also a part of that. He has been less effective for Kansas City. Samad Taylor, though, uh, despite a 523 OPS, really nailing the Dalton Pompey role with uh, seven stolen bases, most of them as a pinch runner. So the Mariners lose. That's good for the Blue Jays. Uh, you obviously, you know, to hear Chris Bassett tell it on the weekend, uh, anytime you're looking at other teams, that's when things go wrong. You got to be focused on your own work, eyes on your own page. We are not the Toronto Blue Jays in that clubhouse, though, so we can continue to keep an eye on the standings. And on a day where the Toronto Blue Jays didn't play, uh, they gained half a game of extra edge over the Mariners, over the Yankees, over the Angels. Yes, they lost half a game to uh, Baltimore in the division chase, but what can you do? The most important thing at this point is securing a playoff spot. And realistically, if you're not going to sweep that Orioles series next week, you're not going to have much of a chance to come back in the division anyway. So uh, maybe focus on doing your best work in the wild card scenarios. The Jays will start a two game set down at Rogers center tonight against the Philadelphia Phillies, Zach Wheeler, Yusei Kikuchi tonight, Aaron Nola, Kevin Gosman tomorrow. 
We'll continue to tee that series up throughout the day. Uh, fun show today. Chris Black's going to come on at 11 o'clock instead of his usual 10 o'clock Tuesday spot. Uh, Michael Bowman of Fangraphs, who is also a Phillies guy, uh, just wrote a Yusei Kikuchi piece. We'll talk to him later in the show about both of those things. Jonathan Mayo of MLB Pipeline is going to come on. There's an updated top 100 prospects over at MLB.com and an updated internal top 30 for the Blue Jays. So we'll kick some of that around with him. But right now we're joined by someone who's a part of a, a lot of ceremonies on the weekend. Caitlin McGrath of the athletic Jose Batista ceremony or the wedding ceremony you went to. What, uh, what stuck out more for you this weekend? Yeah, I know that was a big Saturday for me. Just uh, <laughs> one ceremony to the next. Um, you know, the Jose Batista ceremony was really great. I kind of knew the blue Jays had been working really hard on it. Um, you know, sometimes, our position as, um, you know, media being at games later the night before, you get to see some of the rehearsals and stuff like that that's happening. So um, I had a pretty good idea that they had some, you know, surprises up their sleeves and they had a, a lot planned. But seeing it actually, um, you know, happen, seeing all the players come back and the reaction to him and the, just the reaction, his reaction to everything you know, it was um, it was really special. I uh, I thought it was really well done. I was kind of surprised how emotional he got, um, but then not really because you know I do know that like, I remember last year when I think it was last year when Russell Martin they had a ceremony for him too, and he beforehand was like, no, I don't think I'll cry, and then like <laughs> immediately the video started playing and guys are saying lovely things about him and he starts to cry. So the same thing happened with Jose. And, um, you know, just seeing the name um, actually unveiled on the level of excellence, um, that was really cool too. Like just that moment, um, everyone just kind of watching the same thing at the same time and, you know, all the memories that are flowing through people's minds at that time. It was, it was a cool ceremony. I'm, I'm glad I was there and it was, it was really well done. I have to ask, not to be negative about a fun day, but I... My sources indicate, and I wasn't there because I also had wedding duties that day, Caitlin. My sources have told me that the Jose Batista cookies, however, that were available in the media room were, were not up to the Jose Batista level of excellence standard. Is that accurate reporting? Uh, you know, there was mixed reactions to okay. the cookies. Um, I thought it was okay, but they were really sugary. I think mm. that was the thing that, you know, when like something's so sugary, it like almost hurts your teeth. It's kind of like that. But you know what? If for, for all that was maybe lacking in uh, flavor uh, and taste, the actual cookie looked great. So, you know, credit credit for that. Well, that, that part is important, of course, the big number 19 on a cookie there. Uh, okay, so, Caitlin, before the Jose Batista of it all on Saturday, we did get some news on Friday, and it was after this show, so we haven't really gotten a chance to talk about it much. I know you wrote about it for The Athletic. Uh, the, the big news Friday was Alec Manoa being optioned down to AAA. The Blue Jays, of course, wrap up their 17 games in 17 days stretch. We had talked about, of course, the Dan Schulman of it all. Like, these things have a way to work themselves out. We thought maybe it had worked itself out with Hyunjin Ryu taking a comebacker off the knee. He ended up being fine and was excellent again on Sunday. The decision to option Alec Manoa down rather than try one of these six in the bullpen or phantom IL someone, um, what was your what was your read on that? Did that catch you off guard Friday or, or had that kind of been where you were leaning at that point? Um, it somewhat caught me off guard in the timing of it because I guess they could have waited Um till today realistically um but i think that they wanted the other arm in the bullpen makes sense especially like using ryu 
um, in that situation. Like, he was great. He was fine. But he hasn't exactly been pitching deep into games, probably purposely, um, just given, you know, coming back and using him in the best possible way. And so, um, you know, it did make sense, though, from a move standpoint. I mean, there was no one else to go down. And I think it's just a pure performance um you know reaction it's you know the bullpen's been really great we're we're coming up on a, a scenario where you're actually going to have to maybe send someone down that doesn't deserve to be sent down at all um once you start getting all those guys back from the il romano richards potentially chad green maybe a little further down the line now but eventually um and so yeah like it came down to alec manoa was their sixth best starter and they were going back to a five man rotation and he was just the odd man out. And it, you know, it, I think that there were still positives when he came back. I think that there was definitely progress that he made. I think there was a few outings where you're like, Oh, the slider looks better. Um, there was a few outings where his command was a little better, but I think like overall it still was, you know, not quite um, what he was able to do last year for sure. And when you kind of, examined his performance against everybody else that was pitching in the rotation. Like, you know, his was just the sixth best, uh, you know, like that's just how it came down. And um, I think that you like what Ryu's doing for you. I think you like his different look. I think the fact that he's left-handed is probably an advantage for him too. It helps you with matchups down the road and all the teams the Blue Jays will be facing. And so um, I think it came down to that. And you have to consider, you know, Manoa, the biggest thing with him this year has been a lack of pitch efficiency too. And given the work of the bullpen, you want to keep them as fresh as possible. So if you can avoid, you know, having him leave games um, after four innings or five innings, that's only going to be better too. I agree with you, Caitlin. I, I thought the entire time that the the meritocratous decision would be Alec Manoa goes down to the minors again and continues to work on things. I just I was a little surprised that they did it, just given how much we've heard about well Alec Manoa's confidence and you, and you want to build it up and be careful and things. And yeah, I guess the after the Boston start, I kind of thought, okay, well maybe he's turned a corner here, even though the results weren't you know everything wasn't unbelievable, but it looked a little bit more like Alec Manoa. Um, but it, it went the other way, and I think this also tells us something about their confidence level in Hyunjin Ryu. Um, Caitlin, acknowledging once again that obviously injuries happen, plans change September, you could expand the roster, uh, although I'd imagine they'd prefer the extra bullpen arm to a, a sixth starter then. Um, what is next for Alec Manoa in terms of, you know, maybe the team hasn't said, hey, A, B, and C is what he's working on, but for us, evaluating him, trying to determine what the next part of his story is, are, are your eyes kind of on 2024 at, at this point now? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's some scenario where he makes an impact, um, but that scenario was probably someone else getting injured. Um, like you said, you, you could bring him back when the rosters expand, but I think just looking at the timing of everything, like that could also be the time when you're adding Chad Green, and I think you'd rather the bullpen arm. Or if you added Chad Green before then um, and you, say, have optioned, um, you know, Yenesis Cabrera or Jay Jackson, you want to bring them back up. So I think that it's just a matter of, you know, for Manoa, they really just see him as a starter, and I don't know that they're super keen on moving him to the bullpen um, anyway, and I don't know that, you know, the way that he's been pitching this year, I'm not sure that you're confident having him come out of the bullpen just because um, there has been sort of a lack of 
consistent strike throwing. Um, you don't want to put your bullpen in that position. So I do think realistically, in terms of making a big impact, you're probably looking at 2024. I mean, you know, maybe there's a scenario where there is somewhat of a storybook ending and he does come back because, you know, someone gets injured and he's really impactful in those last couple of starts. That could happen. Um, but, you know, that feels more like Hollywood scripts than what we're dealing with right now. Um, but you never know. Uh, Ryu is kind of living out a Hollywood script right now, so um, it, it happens. But uh, I do think that, yeah, the the way that he pitched this year, and I think he deserves credit for, you know, handling the the, the emotions and, and being a real professional about it and, and trying to work throughout the season. But it's tough to make those adjustments in season, and he, he did a good job. I think he did look better when he came back, just not quite consistent enough. And I think that an off season of, you know, work and coming into spring really ready to go next season is probably the main focus now. Yeah, I think it it pretty much has to be. uh, And yeah, like you said, there are scenarios where they need him again. Spot starts, six man rotation for a bit in September with larger rosters, whatever. Uh, He has to obviously stay ready, but I think, you know, I, I, and I don't know that it'll be the worst thing for him to just go down there and know he's starting every fifth day or every fifth game and just be able to focus on that stuff. Well, because I'd imagine as much as he's a competitor and loves being around the team and they supported him and stuff, the knowing you're hurting your team in the middle of a playoff race is probably uh, not the nicest thing to manage mentally while you're trying to figure out all your mechanics and things like that. Uh, so Caitlin, the Jays had an off day yesterday. They have an off day Thursday. They have another off day Monday. The easy part of this is while the rotation is five guys now and there are five games over this eight-day stretch, that part's straightforward. Um, What do you – I know you wrote about this at The the Athletic coming out of the 17-game and 17-day stretch. Um, Beyond just the value to resetting the rotation and figuring that out, how how crucial is this week plus for a Jays team that has obviously been fortunate injury-wise but is pretty banged up lately? Yeah, I think it's big. I, I like that Thursday off day. Like it's, it works really well for their kind of schedule. Like it feels like Romano's going to come back today after the off day. So will have him for this Philly series. And then there's a couple guys that I think are technically eligible to come off the IL on Thursday, which is an off day for them. So you can activate them on Friday and have them um, available for that Cincinnati series. I think uh, Trevor Richards, probably very likely to come back once he's eligible. And I think Kevin Kiermaier as well um, is in line to not need any more time. I guess the big one is Bo. His is more fluid. You want to be sort of extra careful with him, just the knee um, and any sort of, you know, sharp movement or um, aggressive movement with the knee, something could go wrong. So you really want to be careful with him. Um, And that's the one you're more trying to, um, really game plan when the best part to activate him would be. So is it after the Thursday off day or is it not using him in Cincinnati, taking advantage of one more off day next Monday, but having him available for that Baltimore series, which probably is the bigger series of the two, even though obviously you want to win both series um, and win as many games as you can right now. But I do think this week is really big for the Blue Jays because um, you, you know, you're only having a two game series to go and not having, um, you know, two of your guys back, Richards and, and Kiermaier. And then, yeah, you could look down the road and, and um, two big, bigger three-game series coming up where you could get guys back as well. So um, as much as it was tough to go through the 17 and 17 with as many injuries as they've had, I think now they're in an opportune um, spot to kind of maximize bringing guys off the IL, getting them maybe that one extra day to rest, 
um, and then, you know, using them in series where they, they really matter. When it comes to the starting rotation now, obviously everyone's going to pitch on a, a little bit better rest and on a more standard rotation. We have heard Chris Bassett and on the Philadelphia Philly side as they move to a six-man rotation here, Zach Wheeler as well. Talk about... I kind of don't like it. Kind of would rather be on routine. Zach Wheeler even told uh, your colleague, Matt Gelb at the athletic that he'd rather be at 80% every after four days off than maybe 90% with the extra day off, just from a, a routine standpoint. Um, it, uh, that look, obviously long-term that's the, the view we're taking here. You, you have to keep your guys as well rested as possible. Is that something that Jays need to be aware of here and manage carefully? Or is it, is that too ancillary a consideration? Yeah, I don't know. I've never really explored that with some of the Blue Jays starters. And you look at the numbers and, like, the um, some guys do pitch better on rest. And I, I think it probably matters about context and what's happening. Like, you know, obviously when the Blue Jays were down to, like, a four-man rotation, like, they were grateful for that extra rest and they could get it. And I think, you know, coming out of that, the guys were pretty gassed. Um, they talked about that. And so having the six-man rotation, I think, was, a good opportunity and for the most part it it worked um you know the guys pitched really well i mean that cleveland series was incredible from a pitching standpoint and so i think you feel satisfied that you use it in a smart strategic way but i think that you know they've they've had that extra rest now you can maximize these off days now and then when you really get down to the stretch you know, I would assume that guys at that point of the year, yeah, they're hurting, but they're probably running on a certain level of adrenaline. They're always running on adrenaline, obviously, like they're major league athletes. But I would say, like, you know, games mattering more, um, things are on the line. I think you'd want to be out there. I think you'd be operating on some adrenaline. I think that you want your routine to be pretty consistent at that point. And from a team point of view, like, you want your best guys out there most often. Like, when it comes down to it, like, you know, going back to Manoa, it's like, you know, why use Manoa for a start when you're, you know, you know, you're not sure that he's going to put your position in the best place to win, you know, unfortunately, because he's pitching, throwing too many pitches or whatever it may be. Um, whereas, you know, you could have had a Kikuchi making that start and you're feeling pretty good about the way Kikuchi's pitching right now. So I think it just, it's more from a team strategy standpoint, like you got to just get as many wins as you can with your best guys right now. And your best guys are used to going every fifth day. And so if they can do that right now, you got to do that. And, you know, the other advantage with Ryu coming back is he's probably pretty fresh, right? Like mm -hmm. he's three starts, he's amped to go, um, you know, and, and the other guys, you've got a really durable rotation um, that uh, are, are kind of proven guys that have pitched a ton of innings year in and year out. So you feel pretty good where you are, you're at right now, I think. Caitlin, with respect to that adrenaline element, um, I guess there's also the element of everyone other than Gosman and Barrios is prob are probably competing for, hey, what if there's a game three in a wildcard series? Or what if you get to a seven game series? Who is going to start that? Do you get the sense that, I mean, it's early for this talk, I guess we still got six weeks left, but that outside of Gosman Barrios, who would line up in playoff games is still pretty open? Oh, I think so. And I think it would really depend on matchups. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously, because you're looking at, obviously, the decision would probably be um, with respect to Hyunjin Ryu, like uh, Chris Bassett or um, Yusei Kikuchi. And those are two really different types of pitchers, right? So if a team um, can't hit lefties, I think you're going to go with Kikuchi. If a team um, tends to be kind of really bad against finesse guys, guys that can throw a lot of different things, obviously your decision is pretty easy and you go with Bassett. Like, 
you know, there's probably other considerations. There's intangible considerations that I think the Blue Jays would probably consider, too. Um, they are very, like, methodic and analytical, of course, so I think the numbers would have a big say in it. Um, but there would be intangible, too. You know, you say Kikuchi, um, no experience in the postseason, I don't think. Um, and whereas Bassett, he has made some pretty big starts. He's made some... Um, good starts with Oakland in, in those wild card days. I know a start with the Mets didn't go so well last year, but he's at least been in that spot before. And I remember when the Blue Jays signed him, I think one of the reasons, um, you know, at the time, Ross Atkins was talking about him and listening, like, why did I sign him? And one of the things was for his playoff experience. And so I do think that um, it would be a, probably a pretty lengthy discussion. Now things could change. Um, you know, one of those two pitchers could have, you know, a tough September and make the decision easier. But like all things being equal, them, let's say, just kind of pitching the same way they've been pitching all season long, or at least in the second half. Yeah, I think it's a lengthy discussion. And I think you could have a um, split decision on it. I think that it would really depend on matchups. It would really depend on um, who they're facing, maybe even where they are in the series. Um, well, I guess at that point they'd be tied. But um, like, I think that uh, maybe there's a, a way that you could get creative too and piggyback them as well, you know, all hands on deck. I'm not sure. But I do think it'd be an interesting discussion and, you know, hope, hopefully we get to have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope so. That would be, and hopefully we get to have more of the, hey, who starts game four conversation than who starts game three of a wild card. Uh, that is, uh, yeah, that's not the way any of us want this season to end like last year. So on the hitting side, obviously, Look, we're talking about good problems on the pitching side. We're talking about a bullpen that's been one of the very best in baseball and someone having to come out of that bullpen. Probably Nate Pearson today when, when Jordan Romano uh, returns and then someone else when Trevor Richards returns. We're talking about a rotation that has five guys who have mostly pitched pretty well so far. You'd wonder then why isn't this team like at the top of the table? Why aren't they in the division mix? Why are we talking about wild card? And it is, of course, because with the exception of the last two Sundays, this team hasn't really hit particularly well. Caitlin, I know in your latest mailbag at The Athletic, you got asked kind of, hey, do we need to reset our levels on Vlad and what our expectations are for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And we can get into, you know, some of the underlying stuff. Yes, it is in the stat cast era. So almost a decade now, it's like a top 10 season for your actual results underperforming your expected results. That's true, but also he's swinging more. He's doing damage on stuff over the heart of the plate less. He certainly, you know, watching him and as much as we can read the mechanics when Joe Siddle and Caleb Joseph point them out for us, uh, it looks like there are some things that are not in alignment there and maybe some pressing there. Um, where are you in terms of your expectations for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. the rest of the way and kind of resetting our, our expectation level now that, you know, we've got another season of him being a roughly 800 OPS guy versus a 1000 OPS guy. Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that I come back to a lot of the time is the age. And, and I know that, um, you know, on the one hand, maybe people don't want to uh, listen to that or accept that, but he is still really young. I mean, a lot of guys aren't even making their um, debuts until they're 23, 24 years old. He's been in the majors for five years at this point. So on the one hand, you, you're hoping that he's adjusted. But on the other hand, like, you know, his his path is unique. Like, he was a really gifted minor league player, a player that 
you know, probably didn't have to, I don't want to say he didn't have to work hard, but I mean, he was able to use his talent in such a way that he was just dominant in the minor leagues. Um, and I think that the majors has been, you know, a, a different experience for him. It's a lot of adjustments and, you know, guys will say like, you really can't get by your talent. Even the most talented, you know, players have to make adjustments um, all the time. And, you know, I think for Vlad, it's still been a learning experience. I think with him too, like, you know, I get the sense that he does care a lot. That's never been an issue. And I, do, I, I almost think that sometimes he can care too much in the sense that, you know, he really wants to come up in those big moments and he probably does put a lot of pressure on himself. I think there's probably some truth to the difference in numbers on the road and at home, honestly, like, you know, that's just anecdotal for me and sort of me speculating, but, um, you know, I could see that, I could see that being possible. Um, and so I think that there's still encouraging things. You talked about all the raw numbers. Um, you talked about um, just the expected results being better than the actual results. Um, and so I think you can take some, some good from that. Uh, and I think that you, it's really down to pitch selection for him. And, you know, you know he can do it. He's had that season. I know 2021 feels a long time ago. Um, and there was other things. Maybe there's a different ball and all these different factors. But, um, yeah, I think that, you know, I'm not, I'm not down on Vlad. And I understand fans to be fickle. But I think uh, keep the faith and um, he'll probably reward us. You you certainly have to hope so, and obviously there are some some indicators that say it's coming soon. Some indicators that say just you know, hey, be a, a little patient longer term. We're also going to see a guy uh, this series in Bryce Harper who had some of the similar things. Came up at 19, was awesome out of the gate took a little bit to find his level from just good to uh, truly great. Now, right now he's back to kind of just good, but that is uh, mostly injury related. So he's a, an interesting example to look at year by year. Caitlin, before I let you go, last one for you, um, whether today, whether Friday, you know, let's be reasonably optimistic and say Friday, Bobashek comes off the IL. He's ready to go. Um, who is, is going down. David Schneider obviously has options. He was very hot against the Boston Red Sox. He's cooled off since, even though you still like the approach. I think Santiago Espinal offers some defensive versatility and has hit the last couple games. Kevin Biggio is, I, I think, a little more insulated from that decision. Do you have a, a lean as to who you think the odd bench player out would be when Bo Bichette returns? It's probably David Schneider, just because... Um, a little bit last man in a uh, first man out situation. I think he does have options. He has cooled off since uh, Boston, although he's still giving you good at bats and stuff. And I think the message is pretty clear to him. It's like, we'll see you in two weeks or whatever it is. Or, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think it's going to be devastating. I think it'll be like, you know what? Thank you. And you'll be back here very soon. Go down in Buffalo, keep doing what you're doing. And you're going to have an impact on us in September. And I think that that is just the easiest um, decision. I think the other situation, like you could disrupt the flow of the team a little bit. Espinal, um, you know, at the same, if if Schneider was still like you know, having four hits a night, then the decision is so different. But Espinal's been um, doing well lately. Uh, you know, manager John Schneider has been making a point lately of pointing out his at bat and his work. So to me, I think it's fairly easy decision. David Schneider. Um, and he'll be back before you know it, basically. Yeah, the September 1st is coming up pretty quickly here. So go down, get a, a week's worth of plate appearances in, and then you'll be uh, you'll be right back up there. Plus, you can pal around with Alec Manoa, catch up with him a little bit. Kayla McGrath, great to catch up with you. I will see you down at the park a little later.
Sounds good. See you. Taylor McGrath of The Athletic. Uh, make sure you're checking out all her great work there. Had uh, some great insight on the, the Manoa decision at longer length over there, uh, right up on the Jose Batista weekend, of course. And then, yeah, some of the comments internally about how nice it is to have these three off days over an eight-day stretch, even if it does make for uh, tougher radio weeks to structure with so many off days. Uh, Caitlin also had a mailbag there. I didn't pull too many questions from that, but if you had more questions for Caitlin, uh, I'm sure she probably answered them within there. A couple of them even came up yesterday in our mailbag segment about the futures of, say, a Whit Merrifield or a Matt Chapman, pieces like that. Um, Also down at the ballpark this week. Yeah, yeah, it's Looney Dog Night tonight. You know how I feel about that. But tomorrow is one of the coolest nights of the year. It's the Jays Care broadcast auction presented by TD. Uh, So Ivanka Osmak will be hosting that throughout the broadcast and the television broadcast will be checking in with what's going on uh, there. If you missed prior years... It's uh, there are so many cool things you, you can bid on. There are also buy now options for a lot of the uh, a lot of the different prizes there. Um, it has this fundraiser has raised over two million dollars to support Jay's care programming for children and youth across Canada over the 15 years it's existed. This is year 16. Uh, so we'll see if we can push that number higher. Um, there are. A number of things you can uh, you can bid on. Obviously, I'm not going to read them all off here, but you can check out the Jays Care website and Twitter pages uh, for more details. We'll try to highlight a couple of them as we uh, go through the next two days. The one that sticks out to me, just looking at it here quickly, um, well, first is that there's a Sportsnet experience with Donovan Bennett. Uh, I wasn't asked to be a part of that. Maybe that's, again, like like, like with the 50-50 draw, if you come last place, I'm the person who calls you. Um, but there is a golf trip or a, a, the chance to do a round of golf rather with Joe Carter, obviously Blue Jays legend and Adam Hadwin. That's a, a pretty cool one. There's also a golf round with Russell Martin, which uh, is pretty interesting. If you are a golf person, uh, there is a date night at Roger center. I don't know exactly what that entails, but for those of you looking for love at the ballpark out there, like our gate 14 pals, maybe. Uh, and then there's a, a bunch of other, Great stuff. Uh, Boba Shett hand-painted jersey. A couple of hand-painted items by artist David Arrigo. Um, lots of stuff like that. So keep an eye out for more details there. Keep an ear out on the broadcast, radio and television. Tonight, we'll have more details for you there, and we'll continue to highlight some of those items uh, throughout today and tomorrow's show. You can check out the Jays Care Foundation website and Twitter for more. We're going to take a break. We're going to uh, go back down to Buffalo. Kind of. Uh, MLB Pipeline has their updated top 30s for each franchise right now in terms of prospect rankings. Couple of AAA Buffalo Bisons ranking pretty high there for the Blue Jays, including Aralvis Martinez, who is just inside MLB Pipeline's latest top 100, coming in at number 93. Ricky Tiedemann also at 33. Uh, Jonathan Mayo of MLB Pipeline will join us next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Toronto Blue Jays don't have the best system in baseball, but they've got a pretty interesting one. 
and it's always a, a lot of fun to compare the the different sites. But one of I think probably my favorite to look at for top prospect rankings because they're also integrated into some of the minor league box scores that I checked day to day is MLB Pipeline. There's this cool thing where there's a you can go to there's a page of where you can see the box score from every team's affiliate every single day. And the thing that MLB does is if someone ranks in their MLB pipelines, top 30, they're highlighted in there. So you can find the prospects you're, you're spicy for nice and quick. Um, now that's true of all teams, but it's useful if you're a Jays fan. Uh, if you don't know where to find that, by the way, uh, message me later and I will send you the link because it's a little hidden on the MLB sites, but yes, very, very useful tool. And if you had been looking over the last couple of days, you might notice that different names are highlighted now because MLB pipeline has updated their top 30 by team as well as their top 100 uh, here now that we're post-draft, post-trade deadline and things like that. Uh, Jonathan Mayo of MLB Pipeline joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Blake. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, before we get into some of the MLB Pipeline stuff, Jonathan, you're also the author of Smart, Wrong and Lucky, the origin stories of baseball's unexpected stars. Um, I'm curious how going through the process of writing that book. And obviously we all know as baseball fans, that guys kind of come out of nowhere. Sometimes there are always surprises, but you went so deep on the guys who weren't supposed to make it and the unexpected ways they made it to the majors, the exercise of doing that and going deeper on those stories and writing that book. How much has that changed how you approach things like prospect rankings and prospect write-ups now for guys that, you know, Hey, you don't know if the guys that aren't ranked are, are going to turn into one of those, but I, I'm curious how, those things have kind of played into each other. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it changed too much how we look at you know how I look at the rankings, knowing that that's a very imperfect and inexact science. There are always going to be guys that aren't ranked high enough or not ranked at all who end up you know turning into solid big leaguers to stars. And uh, you know, in doing the the rankings and in all I do, I talk to scouts all the time. Uh, and that's kind of where these stories emanated from because they're great storytellers and they all have tremendous tales to spin about. Uh, they like talking about guys they missed on. Oh, I should have <laughs> taken this guy. But they also, you know, e either about themselves or more likely about one of their colleagues. They're like, oh, well, you need to talk to this scout because he's the guy that, you know, knew that you should, you know, that there was something in Jacob DeGrom in the, you know, in the eighth or ninth round or, or Albert Pujols in, in the 13th round or, you know, for, for fans in Canada, you know, Joey Votto is in the book and he was a second rounder, but that was a bit of a surprise to a lot of people in the industry at the time. Is there, in going through this exercise and looking at some of those success stories, is there any sort of common thread of, hey, this is the thing we, we've tended to overlook or underrate over the years? Or is it really just kind of a case-by-case -case basis? And, and I bring this up just because the Blue Jays have one of these right now in David Schneider debuting and making a hot little run here. And I'm, I wonder if, you know, he checks some of the boxes that you, you kept coming across uh, in writing the book. Well, I think there are a couple of things that stand out. And, you know, w one thing is that the, this book really looks at the sort of front end of how they were scouted and evaluated and, 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 you know, and ultimately selected and signed and not as much about uh, what happens on the player development side. So I, I think that in terms of a threat on, on the front end, the one thing in terms, uh, you know, with the pitchers is that, uh, you know, I think too much attention is spent um, looking at radar guns. And scouts will even admit this, but you can't 
but you can't not, um, you know, and, and that the, a couple things can happen. Guys can throw harder. I mean, that's what happened with Jacob deGrom. Uh, that's what happened with Shane Bieber. Uh, you know, the, the, the pitchers I highlight in, in the book, both of whom were kind of uh, known for their command and their, you know, and their, maybe their ability to spin the ball a little bit in terms of, of Jacob deGrom, who was mostly a shortstop in college, really didn't pitch uh, full time at all uh, until his junior year. And even then he was still playing shortstop. So uh, that's the one thing on that end. And then on the other end, I mean, a lot of these guys end up having, you know, some chips on their shoulders. And I, I honestly, I don't know Davis Schneider, but I'm going to guess as a sort of undersized guy who was a 28th round pick, uh, they all feel that they have something to prove. Uh, and some of them, you know, felt like that they were much better players than where they were drafted represented. They used that to fuel them uh, to become the bigger leaders. They become, you know, thinking about a guy like Ian Kinsler, who, you know, bounced around different organizations. Uh, I mean, bounced around different colleges, played at three different schools, lost a starting spot at Arizona state to uh, Dustin Pedroia, uh, had a transfer to Missouri was, wasn't known there, got hurt. You know, so he ended up going in, you know, round 17, uh, but knew he was going to be a big leader and always played with that kind of chip. You know, Albert Pujols told me that he always had this desire to show people that he, he should not have been overlooked the way he was. He was a 13th rounder, uh, you know, out of, out of a small junior college, uh, you know, in the Midwest. So uh, I think that's maybe the, the thread that carried them once they signed and helped motivate and fuel them to, to become who they became. And that's that book is, again, smart, wrong and lucky. The origin stories of baseball's unexpected stars. And, and on the other end of this is the guys we know are prospects that are scouted highly and ranked highly and things like that. Uh, so at MLB Pipeline, you guys have recently updated the top 100, the top 30 for each organization. I uh, want to start on the Blue Jays, of course. Ricky Tiedemann coming in at number 33. Now, he's had a, a bit of a stop start year here. Obviously, the stuff is the stuff it's pretty electric even when he's made uh short rehab appearances the last little while the strikeout numbers are, are pretty remarkable how difficult is it ranking a guy who first of all is still very young just about to turn 21 this week but is you know mostly stuff at this point and not a lot of actual in-game track record because of injuries and caution with the with the workload yeah i think that Injuries to pitchers are the hardest thing, you know, and it's, it's a weird thing. Cause we've gotten to the point now, if a guy has Tommy John surgery, we don't go two nuts and knocking him down because they tend to come back pretty strong from that. Now we don't know. We still are trying to figure out what happens if you have Tommy John surgery when you're super young and, and whether or not, you know, the elbow breaks down again later on. Uh, but I think with a guy like Tiedemann, you know, he showed such incredible stuff last year. Uh, and it was only 70, not quite 79 innings, but with some feel, right? This wasn't a guy who was walking nine guys per nine, right? This year has been tougher because he's missed so much time. Um, it was an interesting sort of debate between, we got some questions about this between uh, him and Kyle Harrison, the lefty from the Giants, in terms of who's the best left-handed pitching prospect in the game right now. Harrison's had command issues, uh, had a little bit of a hamstring issue 
as well, but n- nothing arm related. So he got the slight edge above Tiedemann. I, I'm, we're still very, very high in Ricky Tiedemann. That's why we had him as high as he did. And you mentioned his, how young he is. Uh, it's not time to worry yet. Uh, and, and you're going to err on the side of caution from a player development standpoint when a pitcher that talented and that young has some, some, some nicks and bruises, so to speak, along the way. But I, I think next year, I don't want to say a guy who's 21 is like a big year for him. I, I think getting him to, say, 100 innings, uh, even if he spends all year in the minors, uh, it will be a good step forward. And, and honestly, if, if he stays healthy next year, I think you're going to see him in Toronto at some point. That was that. Hey, that was on the table this year of, Hey, if he stays healthy and he's good, maybe he could get some late in late season innings with Toronto. Obviously that hasn't happened. Um, Another 21 year old who has ascended through the minors. I I mean, not fast because he's been in the system so long, but he has reached 21, right? Reached triple a now at age 21 is Arelvis Martinez. He was repeating double a to start this year, tough start to the year, but a big step forward by the time he earned the promotion and not, not going all world or anything like that. And they start at triple a, but a, a pretty solid first 20 or so games there. Arelvis Martinez sneaks into the top 100 at number 93. What have you liked about his 2023 season? Well, I think, you know, the power is obviously legitimate. And I think he's shown that over, you know, the last couple of years. And then the question is, well, what about the approach? Uh, you know, the, the strikeouts uh, have uh, kind of been more in check this year. He's drawing more walks. I think it's the combination of those two things has allowed him to get to, to the power again and not give away at bats as much. He, he's a little bit of a divisive player in terms of, you know, when we're, we're ranking him and we'll do our top 100 and then we'll send it out to as many scouting directors and executives as we can. And we get a bunch of feedback. And he was one of those guys that we had, uh, you know, one or two people say, no, he shouldn't even be on the top 100. One or two people saying, you're too low, move him way up. You know, so, it, you know, it depends on when you see him. Uh, that power is going to play, um, you know, and I, I think regardless of what position he's going to be, I think he is going, he's going to have the chance to be a, like, power slash run producing infielder of some sort. Um, there are some question marks, you know, just in terms of the, the overall hit tool. Um, that's, like I said, I think that's gotten a lot better I think he probably ends up at third um, where the power is, you know, is more important. And I think he's going to have that profile and then add to the mix. As you mentioned, he is still very, very young and playing at a high level. It seems like we've been talking about him forever. Um, but as you pointed out, he's in triple a now and he's played this entire season at age 21. So in a lot of ways, he's, way ahead of the curve. And we have to be mindful of that when we start getting a little prospect fatigue with guys who have been around for quite some time. Which is a good warning if anyone is, you know, three, four or five years from now impatient with Arjun Amala, who is entering ball at only 17, uh, has played a handful of complex league games now. He was obviously the Jays' first round pick, number 20 overall. He slots in as the Jays' number three prospect. Now, this question can be about Namala or it can be about, you know, Skeens and Cruz coming in number three and number four in the overall top 100 but just generally where is the challenge in slotting recent draftees in to a top 100 or or an internal uh, an organization ranking list with guys who at least have a bit of minor league track record at this point what what sort of things are you are you weighing against each other when, when you decide where to slot recent draft picks in 
It's, it's, it is quite difficult, you know, in schemes and crews, that's the highest we've ever had any duo from the recent draft, but that I think reflects how special this, the top of this draft class and all five of those top five guys, Wyatt Langford and Max Clark and Walker Jenkins are all in our top 20. And that's never happened before either. And, and those five really had separated themselves and all five of those guys could have been number one picks in any draft. Uh, so we wanted to be kind of aggressive with them. One of the things that's you know difficult is that you're not talking to the same people uh, when you're ranking the list because when we're doing our draft ranking, we're talking to amateur scouts and amateur scouting directors, and on the pro side, we're talking to pro scouting directors. And for a top 30 list, you know we will look both internally and externally. Uh, and one of the issues you have is when you're trying to figure out where to put Arjun Namala on the Blue Jays list, the Blue Jays player development system people haven't really seen him um, or haven't seen much of him. Maybe they're getting a very, very early look. Uh, so we try to find a, a, a bridge. Maybe we'll try to find people within the organization who have a feel on both sides of, the, of that ledger, which isn't always easy. So it's a little guesswork, and you'll see some, some adjustments made so that, you know, if Arjun goes out and, you know, plays well the rest of this year and looks really in instructs, you may see him, you know, bump ahead of Aralvis Martinez uh, or, you know, uh, or even maybe I wouldn't say he's not going to leap over Ricky Tiedemann before he starts playing, but that will then sort of we'll start looking at as he hits full season ball, presumably at the beginning of next year at, at age 18. How, how he handles that challenge. And I'm a big Arjun Namala fan, so I actually think he is going to uh, move up the, of the list and jump onto our top 100 once he gets going you know, in earnest. Well, that's uh, that's exciting. The the bat speed and the the high finish, Mookie Betts like finish. Uh, obviously, we haven't seen a, a ton of clips of it from the the complex league yet, but they're they're the right buzz terms that the Blue Jays sprinkle in there for us. Um, last Jays specific one for you, Jonathan, uh, about a name who has risen up in the system rankings uh, a little bit this year. I don't know that he's a name everyone was super familiar with coming into this season. Uh, Alan Roden. Uh, a Third round pick last year, a little bit overage. So, you know, he hits a ball last year at 22. Maybe we expect him to hit the ground running a little bit. He's already up to double A now, and he's up to, I think you guys have him as the number seven prospect in the Blue Jays system. Um, that has happened pretty quickly, and I understand that a guy being a little older, we, we've got to be a little careful with the immediate success. But what do you like about Alan Roden, and what should we keep be keeping an eye on as he moves up uh, through the system here? Yeah, I think that, you know, he came in as a guy who had been known for, for making contact, and then you just want to see how it's going to play. Uh, and what he did in Vancouver was kind of hard to ignore. And, and so he went from, speaking of you know, a, late, a slightly later round, uh, not super late round, draft guy, uh, you know, yes, who is a little tiny bit older, but the fact that he did what you would expect him to do uh, and then some, and then earn the promotion up to double A, where he's no longer really like old for his level and has continued to do the same kinds of things. Uh, you know, obviously the, the, the main stats that people may look at don't jump off the page, but he's still drawing a ton of walks. He's getting on base. Uh, he's shown that he can mean that he's a solid outfielder when he was more kind of a, seemed like a, a first base type. 
And then, you know, so a, an under six foot first baseman without a ton of power is a really tough profile. <laughs> um, but a, a guy who can play both outfield corners, maybe help out at first base can steal a base. You know, he does a lot of little things really, really well. Um, you know, I think he has a chance to be an everyday guy, even if he moves around just because of the hit and the on-base ability and just enough sneaky pop to keep pitchers honest. Yeah, it's uh, not bad. Six home runs this year through 89 games. Um, I, I guess, Jonathan, this is the, the last one before I let you go here. And this is, again, not J-specific, but as we look around minor league baseball and we see different rules being applied at, at different levels. You know, we've got the the ABS system, sometimes a triple a, the challenge system, sometimes there obviously different leagues have different hit environments is, is walk rate kind of the, the toughest thing to extrapolate when, when you're just scouting the stat line. Well, I mean, I think knowledge of the strike zone is still knowledge of the strike zone, regardless of whether it's a human calling balls and strikes or, you know, or a machine uh, or a robot or whatever, however you want to call it. So, uh, you know, the ability to make, you know, decisions. So I guess it, it, it may come down to less of a, a walk rate, which is, you know, which is the sort of way to quantify it and more swing decisions, um, which, you know, there are advanced metrics for that kind of thing, but it's not as like easy to look at a stat line and be like, Oh, He's making really good swing decisions because just because a guy's drawing walks uh, doesn't mean that he's swinging at, you know, pitches he should be swinging at uh, and doing damage with them. So uh, I, I think it's, you know, a combination of the ability to work counts uh, and, uh, and also hit the ball hard when you should, right? So if you see a 2-0 fastball and don't right down the middle of the plate and don't swing at it, that's not great, even if it means your walk rate is high. So, I, you know, I think it's kind of a combination of all the different things that people talk about, you know, exit velocities, uh, hard hit rates, what you do with different pitches, uh, along with the ability to draw walks. Good reminder that we can only see so much from the stat line, and that's where tools like MLB Pipeline uh, come in so valuable. Jonathan Mayo, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, man. Thanks for having me. Jonathan Mayo, MLB Pipeline. You can go check out the rest of the Blue Jays' internal top 30, as well as his book, Smart, Wrong, and Lucky, The Origin Stories of Baseball's Unexpected Stars. Uh, Brandon Barriera still coming in at fourth on the Blue Jays' internal rankings. I, I do wonder if that changes at some point, just given he's been shut down again, and they've been pretty shush about it. The other interesting name we ran out of time to ask Jonathan about is Emmanuel Bonilla. He was the Blue Jays' top international signing in the last period. He's ranked as the number seven international prospect, which is a separate ranking from the top 100. It is just the Dominican Summer League, but as a 17-year-old, he is absolutely killing it down there, hitting just shy of 300 uh, with an OPS just a little north of 800. Uh, not a lot of power in the profile yet, but for a 17-year-old to have a 13% walk rate, not strike out a ton, um, and you know put the, put the speed into action a little bit for batting average on balls and play a handful of steals. It's a, it's an exciting stat line and he's really trended in the right direction. If you're someone like me who looks at the box scores uh, more or less daily, he's had a couple of monster performances in July and August to push that line forward. So another name to keep in mind, we're going to take a break, switch it back from prospecting to the current team. Chris black joins us for his regular Tuesday spot next as Jay's talk plus continues on the sports radio network and sports at 360. 
diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkus Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. It's Tuesday and tennis is done. So we get Chris Black. He's at Down to Black on Twitter. I can't see yet if his Hyunjin Ryu thread has come out, but there's one coming today or at some point before Hyunjin Ryu's next start. Uh, fresh off the National Bank Open, Chris Black at Down to Black, producer at Sportsnet. How are you, buddy? The thread has not dropped yet. I'm still moving a little slowly post-tennis. Um Still what? They were only like me. 18 hour days. What's the big deal? There was, I think it was the Friday, the days blend together. The math on the five matches on center court that day, uh, over 1000 points played on center court that day, 15 hours. We were up at noon. We signed off at 3 AM still recovering. That one's going to go, uh, in the book, uh, at the end of my career. Wow. Who would have guessed the, the, uh, what, what is higher, uh, points on that, court that day or Vlad's OPS right now? Who who would have thought it was tennis in a landslide? <laughs> Ooh. Um, okay. So there, the Hyunjin Ryu thread is coming at some point. Ryu's not starting uh, tonight or tomorrow, but I know it's a thread you're excited about. You think you picked up something uh, in his last start enough so that you're bugging Petriello about it and getting him to, uh, to dig in on baseball savant. What did you see in Hyunjin Ryu's last start that caught your eye? Well, first of all, I don't need much of a reason to bug Mike Petriello with stuff. Sometimes it's just <laughs> if I haven't spoken to him in a while, I just want to reach out and bug him a bit. And he's such a good sport that he puts up with me all the time. But um, yeah, Ryu was interesting because I, I, I didn't see his start live, obviously, on Sunday. That's when the final was um, uh, in Montreal. But I watched it yesterday morning. And to be honest, what stood out was the absolute first play appearance of the game I watched it was uh I don't remember who he faced to be honest but um fastball down and away change up down fastball down and in change up out and away and if you just watched how he got him out um the change up down and away you'd say you know we've all seen that story from Hunjin Ryu a million times before but but the sequence all four pitches down in the zone and especially that first pitch down and away like it just looked it looked different than a lot of the pitches we've seen from Hunjin Ryu over the last few years. So dove in a little bit more and it just, it moved a little bit different than most of his fastballs. So that's when I bugged Petriello and talked to some people and he talked to some people who are way smarter than me. He's just smarter than me, but there's other people who are way, way smarter. And, uh, and yeah, they said, yeah, it kind of moves he's had a few this year that are more like sinkers than four seamers. So that, that was kind of the first kind of thing that, that stood out. And uh, look, the sinker is a pitch that Hyunjin Ryu has thrown in the past. You go back to his early Dodgers days and it was his number two pitch at times after his four seam fastball. And he'd kind of slowly gotten away from it, used the cutter for a little bit, emphasized the change up a little bit more. I still think fastball change up is going to be his bread and butter. And we'll see where the exact percentage comes down once baseball savant splits these up from fastball to to sinker but what do you like about that addition other than just you know hey Ryu as a as a finesse and sequencing and artiste kind of guy having a fifth pitch is better than only having four um what do you like about what the sinker allows him to do specifically 
Uh, I think it's kind of in response to them going away from the cutter. Um, I think a few years ago, the cutter was a really good weapon for Ryu. And I think now where it's at, sitting at 84, 85, um, I don't know that he can get into righties with that cutter the it's way he could have just kind of a ago. bad slider at this point, right? A, a little bit, a little bit, yeah. So I, I think I think because that's gone away as a weapon, they had to kind of get in the lab and and figure out, you know, what are some other ways you can get righties out. And the thing that stands out is he's working away from righties, obviously super small samples, but working away from righties more than he ever has with the Jays. Like you have to go back to Dodgers days when he was working away this much. And that ties back to what you were talking about when he was throwing sinkers. And the other thing that stands out, he's working down in the zone more than he ever has. So I think it's, I think it's in response to the cutter. And also they think these sinkers away can kind of tunnel with the change-ups out of the zone away pretty good. That's one that's one possible theory. And we've seen the change-up. He really hasn't been forced to bring it into the zone yet, it seems like. It seems like teams have kind of forgotten what, what <laughs> Ryu throws. Or maybe it's just tunneling really well off of this, off of these fastballs away. So it might just be the change-up, not having to bring the change-up into the zone might be a kind of a check mark of, yeah, this is tunneling well off of this sinker. And we've also, you know, the thing we hear about Hyunjin Ryu in his return, but also over the years is he's a guy that if he misses, he misses where he wants to miss. And it's a lot safer to miss low than to miss to other spots that you can miss to. So having another option uh, to work low in the zone, you know, he, he's he's a guy too who, when he's been at his very best, had some pretty good ground ball rates. So if he can get back to that as well, maybe that helps you account for what we anticipate will continue as a drop-off and strikeout rate because the swing and miss stuff probably isn't coming back to, you know, 2000, 2020 or, or 2014 levels. Uh, so that'll be something to watch when Hyunjin Ryu uh, starts again. The Jays are going with Kikuchi and Gosman for this two-game set against the Phillies. Uh, Chris, I talked about it a little bit with Caitlin, but because you and I haven't gotten to talk about it yet, uh, what is your thought on the Alec Manoa being sent to AAA decision now that the Jays only need uh, five starters here? And are you, is there much you're going to be taking from those AAA results given, you know, how all over the place the the last time ramping back up was? Yeah, well, to be honest, like, no, I guess to answer that first last question, that last question first, uh, no, like I'm not going to take a lot away. That's like the Manoa story to me and that like my takeaway from that choice they made, it's more about Yusei Kikuchi. Mm -hmm. The Yusei Kikuchi story more than it is an Alec Manoa story. If Kikuchi was still a a five-inning, three-earned run guy, which he, he was at times earlier on this season, I think he'd be in the bullpen. And Manoa would be on the major league roster working through his own stuff. But I think Kikuchi earned, I think Kikuchi's kind of awesome performances have kind of earned this call, like there's always stuff you need to worry about when it comes to Kikuchi. We, we know the home runs in the past. Uh, we know the command can, he can at times lose the command, but um, the biggest thing that stands out last couple of starts are the ground balls. Like he's had oh, July, April through July ground ball rate. Like it's, it's below or yeah. Like he doesn't get the ball on the ground a ton kind of ground ball rate, upper thirties. Uh, but the last two starts, 12 ground balls in each, of the last two starts. First time he's had back-to-back -back games with double-digit grounders since like 2021. So you like being that kind of powerful 
pounding the zone, that kind of pitcher, but while also getting the ball on the ground, then yeah, that's a new kind of capability that we haven't seen in the past. So like I said, like the Manoa thing, I, I can see it uh, both ways. And I know a few like more than I kind of thought it'd be Kikuchi moving to the pen, but Kikuchi earned and kind of forced them to make that choice. And the ground ball, rate is uh, is an important one like you said three of his last four starts uh ground ball rate up over uh, 50%, uh, so more than half the batted balls. And then there is a trend also that we're going to talk to Mike Bauman about uh, in a little bit here that the fly balls he has allowed have been hit hard less frequently. And that is, you know, maybe owing to some pitch mix changes, the, the curve ball being as effective as it has been. But in addition to more ground balls, there's there's three ways to limit home runs, right? Don't let the ball in play at all, which is striking guys out. There is don't allow the ball in the air, which is ground ball, right? And then there's, if you allow the ball in the air, don't allow it to be hit it hard. And Kikuchi's kind of checking all three of those boxes right now. Having said that, Chris, there are some underlying indicators that suggest Kikuchi's been a little bit fortunate this year. He doesn't grade out um, super elite in some of the batted ball metrics. Obviously, the, the, the whiff, the walk rate, the strikeout rate, all that stuff is good. But some of the hard contact stuff is still, uh, you know, there are still some minor warning signs. Not, not major, but enough to, to keep an eye on it. Do those mean much to you at, at this point, given what we've seen the last couple starts? Like, I, I guess I don't think any of us are concerned that you say Kikuchi is going to go back to 2022, but do those mean much to you in terms of, Hey, maybe we can't pencil him in as quite this good at this point. I think the, I think the Kikuchi is that he's a guy who at times when he misses, he's going to miss over the plate mm-hmm. and he, he's not, we just talked about a guy in Ryu who's, you know, I, I think I've dubbed him the maestro before, like his edge rate, he's come back. He hasn't pitched in a year and a half, and he's working the edges more than any other Blue Jay pitcher. Like Ryu, like Ryu is a guy who is not going to miss over the plate. Kikuchi doesn't have that kind of command. Now, it doesn't matter because he's throwing the ball seven miles an hour harder. He's throwing it with a hard, with a hard-breaking slider. So he doesn't need to be as fine as Ryu. So he is going to miss over the plate at times. Those balls are going to get hit. But like I said, if he's if he's getting the balls on the ground, if he's, you know, I'm fine with the odd home run. We always have uh, with Kikuchi if they're not three run home runs. You know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. if, he's, if he's limiting the traffic on the bases, the odd home run and the odd bit of hard contact, I'm okay with. And, you know, the always – we – we tend to talk about these things uh, separately, but I always like to kind of remind people like this is, this is one of the, the Jays wanted to improve defense, right? Like it allows, it gives you a benefit and a margin of error when it comes to your pitchers where some pitchers might start to perform against their batted ball data because you've got Matt Chapman winning a gold glove potentially this year because you've got gold glove outfielders. Like those guys, there's, look better even when they're giving up hard contact. So um, I like him, and he's been outstanding. I miss, I, I wish I could have seen the start uh, live that he threw. Yeah, he was, uh, he was excellent. And if you are worried about, you know, that kind of meatball percentage is what baseball savant calls it um, among guys who have, uh, thrown enough pitches to qualify. Kikuchi is 21st in, in how often he throws it right over the heart of the plate out of 117 pitchers who qualify. So it's high, but it's not remarkably high. And the 
actual outcome on those pitches is, is not, um, you know, terribly high either it's he's surviving it and I think like you said you're okay with a couple of home runs here and there for Yusei Kikuchi and especially so now that the walk rate is down because solo home runs don't don't hurt you that bad uh, and he's shown an ability to avoid those big innings that plagued him at times last year uh, let's pivot to the hitting side here Chris I know last week you had picked up something on Dalton Varsho and uh, a move to a, a more subtle toe tap being a little more closed at the plate. So naturally coming off a week of better results and us identifying that he comes out and strikes out three times in his next appearance. Uh, but he then has, you know, arguably his best game as a J on Sunday. If you look at the last 10, his OPS is up to almost 900. Now we're lowering the bar a little bit here, looking at small samples, but um, given what you, you thought you'd identified with Varsho last week, did you see more of what you liked this past week? A little bit. And, and I haven't seen as much of, I saw him like we have a, we have a monitor uh, when all the Sportsnet channels uh, in the truck. And yeah, so when the Jays are on, when the Jays are on, you know, I watch the Varsho at bats. I peek over when I can take a little bit more of an interest in him uh, over the last year for obvious reasons. Um, but yeah, no, I like it. I like what he's doing. And I like, to be honest, what I like is I feel like he's in the part of the order where he should be. And I understood all the reasons why he started where he did. Um, but I think it might've been a lot for him when you look back at him, when, you know, when he, you know, when we're all in spring training talking about things uh, next year, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it all just felt a little bit much for him to come in and be hitting cleanup and all that stuff. Like he's in the right part of the lineup and that's, it's also helpful that like there's guys at the top who are producing, there's less pressure and his production is viewed as a bonus rather than necessary. And I, I always think that that's kind of a good spot for a young new player to be. So I haven't seen a, a ton of his at bats, but I, I just like, I feel like this is where he should be right now. And this is where he can kind of, it's easier for him to find success there. And certainly a, a case to be made that as things spiraled on him a little bit, given the pressures you're talking about, the pressure he maybe puts on himself, uh, a little bit of an inkling to try to do too much. And I think that's what we saw with George Springer a little bit in his disaster of a July, tying a franchise record for a hitless at bat streak since then. And again, we're, we're lowering bars a little bit here in small samples, but we got to take the samples we're given here. Last 12 games since breaking out of that stretch, George Springer has a 378 batting average, a 976 OPS. Yes, that is uh, a little favorable when it comes to batting average on balls in play on a couple infield singles or, or ones that squeaked through, uh, but also some extra base hits in there. Home run, four doubles. And Chris, I know that in digging into some of the swing decisions, both by pitch type and location, you think you've identified something that says, hey, George Springer got the message whether from the coaching staff or from himself, that he was trying to do too, a little bit too much. And it's actually been simplifying his approach that's helped here. Yeah, that's what it seems like. As you said, the numbers are a lot better of late. You know, you, we've heard Caleb this past weekend. I, I heard him a couple times post games. We've heard Siddle throughout the year mention this. We've heard Buck mention this. Like, you got to hunt the fastball sometimes. And I think that's been driving Springer's success. Um, March through July, 264 average, a slugging around 430, um, and a run value minus four against fastballs. So far in August, small sample alert, 450 average, 640 slugging around, 
plus three run value. So he's he's getting hits. He already has more hits in August against fastballs than he did in July. Now, obviously, July, <laughs> there weren't a lot of hits against any kind of pitches uh, for Springer. But, you know, when you watch those hits off the fastballs, to me, that's where the story develops, especially when you contrast it against what he did in July. So kind of broke out every month where he's had at least 70 plate appearances. July 2023 was the lowest OPS of those 42. He struggled more last month than he pretty much ever has. July 2023 was also the highest swing rate of those 42. And it seemed to me, not just in those moments, not just during that hitless streak, you know, he was trying to swing his way out of it, which, you know, sometimes like that is the approach you need to do. But also like there was like a rational, um, like a, a, a valid reason for him to be swinging more. Pitchers have been attacking him more this year than they ever have. He's the highest zone rate since his rookie year, highest zone rate on first pitches, highest zone rates on 1-0 counts. And I think when, especially when you look at those, the 0-0 and the 1-0 stuff, to me that the scouting report has challenged this guy, don't fall behind. So if you're seeing that in the box, I think it's reasonable to say, I'm going to be aggressive and I'm going to attack and I'm going to try and swing my way out of this cold stretch. But it didn't work like that. And one of the reasons why is he pulled the ball in the air more often in July 23 than in in all but one of those 42 months. And so I think like the pull the ball in the air more is a classic like hmm. argument we've heard this year about the Blue Jays and I understand it. But like so at sometimes it makes me kind of it kind of confuses me because I'm just like, well, do you just want more home runs? Because like, yeah, we we all want to see more home runs, but just trying to pull any ball in the air more, it's way too broad and general of a statement when talking about a team, a player, or anything. Like, and what you saw when I looked at all of those pulled balls in the air for Springer in July, you know, it was pulling outside fastballs. It was being out on your front foot and trying to flip the bat to pull a breaking ball. Um, you know, and those things wind up being, even if you kind of barrel it, it ends up being like you're losing distance and they end up being warning track fly balls and they end up being lazy fly balls to the left fielder. So I don't think that's good process. Now, if you're telling me, no, we want you to drive the ball, then yeah, I'm, I'm all for, I'm all for balls that go 420 that are pulled. No one's against those. But <laughs> so, so what we saw in August was he got timed up properly to fastballs. He was thinking big part of the field and all those, a lot of those hits are right side up the middle Stuff like that. So I like that process. I don't think it's a process that he's going to stick with throughout, but for a way to get out of a slump, I love the logic of it. And it's it's worth noting too that on the season as a whole, the you know July obviously he got out of what had made him effective, and he wasn't particularly effective before. But when it comes to hey, is this guy equipped to apply? the approach that you're laying out there, Chris, and be patient and identify and recognize pitches. Well, this is a guy who has a career low swing and miss rate right now and has always been a guy who doesn't chase a ton outside of the zone. He's chasing less now than he than he has since Houston. So those things tell me that this is someone who recognizes pitches well and is comfortable, you know, taking the right pitches and waiting. It's just a matter of, yeah, you got to... Uh, you got to find your way to a few more fastballs. He's seeing fewer fastballs than at any point in his career. So that the, the stat you mentioned with pitchers challenging him more, they're also challenging him more with breaking stuff and off-speed stuff in the zone. So we'll see how this is going to be a fun ebb and flow to see over the rest of the year where George Springer has shown an ability to be disciplined, stick to that approach, 
wait on fastballs, but pitchers have tried as much as they can. Now you can't just abandon fastballs entirely, uh, but they've tried to get away from that and attack them early in counts with, with breaking and off speed stuff in the zone. So it's going to be uh, an interesting cat and mouse here as we go. I, I'm thinking specifically if the Jays end up in a wild card game uh, against the Houston Astros, given some of what you've laid out in the past with the Astros and Bo Bichette, and obviously the Astros familiarity with George Springer uh, should be fun to watch to see how this continues to develop tonight. We're going to see Zach Wheeler on the Hill for the Phillies. Now he's someone who is probably going to be comfortable challenging George Springer however he wants, because Zach Wheeler has a lot of ways uh, to attack guys. He throws six different pitches, five. If you, if you don't believe the, the changeup is an actual pitch that, that he mixes in there uh, because he's only thrown a handful of them on the season. But Zach Wheeler is a guy who this is a, a quote unquote down year for him and his ERA is sub four. And he's been out there pretty much every time through the order. Uh, he gave the blue Jays fits when he saw them earlier in the year, he gave them four really good innings late in September last year when he was just fresh off the IL. Uh, what do you like about Zach Wheeler's game and what are you looking for tonight for the Jays? Uh, Zach Wheeler's command is like elite, 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 elite. He's a fun guy to watch. Um, we dove him on, dove into his stuff during the playoffs in the past couple of years, a little bit. And he's just one of those guys where when you look at uh, the heat maps of his pitches, they're beautiful. Like they're the red is all near the edges. You look out like when he paints sinkers, they're beautiful. And they just, he, he can put his breaking balls exactly where he wants to. It's just, it's one of those guys who's a pleasure to watch. It's an Estrada Ryu type of command. Uh, but, with also elite stuff, which makes him a super hard combination. Um, to me, based on what I said there about being able to paint and put the ball exactly where he can, this ties back to kind of what I was saying about Springer. Like, it's interesting hunting. Siddle and I were talking about this the other day when we were catching up. When you're hunting fastballs, sometimes it allows you to lay off um, – depending on the location, but actually it ties back to kind of the pulling the ball in the air thing, where if you're thinking, I need to pull the ball, I need to pull the ball, that's where you start to see the chasing on the breaking balls down and away. Like those two processes are kind of tied together and sometimes trying to, you know, trying to swing your way out of a slump, trying to fix wrist struggles, all in one plate appearance, trying to do all that stuff. That's what makes you susceptible to all that chase we were talking about. And like the good approaches that can kind of infuriate Jays fans sometimes, I think what that does is it allows you to lay off some of this stuff. So like Wheeler, it's to me, it's a simple approach that you need to approach him with. If you get a mistake, if you get a hanging breaking ball middle middle then yeah by all means <laughs> get the get the you know get the front foot down and rip it but you know i just you really need to be you need to dial down what you're trying to do when you face a good pitcher like this a really good pitcher like this so it's it's always fun to watch these battles and it's you know it's the other thing that i like about these schedules where you're just you're seeing different teams all like i'm going to cincinnati on Thursday or Friday. And I'm really excited to see that team for a whole variety of reasons, but like, it's cool that we get to see different teams equally. It feels more like an NBA season this year than, uh, than the way the baseball seasons have felt where it seems like you're facing the Rays or the Orioles all the time. So kind of cool that we get to see, you know, the best pitchers in the game, best hitters of the game so often. Yeah. No big deal. You get to go down to Cincinnati for the weekend, whatever, whatever, <laughs> Chris, it's fine. You just my go hang out with Joey Votto. Not happy. Go hang out with well, Joey no, Votto. Oh yeah. 
coming off of like two weeks in Montreal doing 15 hour days, I, I bet that, yeah, you raising your hand for the Cincinnati assignment wasn't a, wasn't a popular one. Um, with, with respect to Wheeler, good luck to Blue Jays righties um, because that sweeper has been deadly this year. And if, even if you do sit fastball, uh, you're talking about 96, if it's the four seamer and a sinker at 95, that is going to run in on your hands and is a ground ball machine. So uh, best of luck to those uh, Blue Jays. Uh, Chris, before we let you go here, uh, we are anticipating Jordan Romano will be activated tonight. He had a rehab inning on Saturday at AAA Buffalo. Obviously, the the back issues that he was dealing with in his last outing, we saw that that was very plainly affecting the command uh, of the fastball before he was taken out of that game. Uh, what are you looking for from, from Jordan Romano to, to let you know he he's right? Or, or was there anything you know on the radar before he hit the IL for you at all anyway? Not really. Like you mentioned, you hit off the top. Like his command wasn't the best. And when he's when he's right, like Romano's an elite command guy. And, you know, uh, he can paint the slider. He can work the fastball where he wants to within a certain range. So to me, what stands out about Romano going on the IL and getting right was that they had the runway and the ability to do so um, and not, you know, not totally go in the tank. And I, and I feel like that's just a testament to the Hicks acquisition. Um, I know there have been some hiccups of late, um, but to me, Romano going on the IL, being able to withstand it, that just speaks to the bullpen depth. And the fact that they've been able to withstand it, now we can come back, slot some guys into better spots. I think it's just better. And I think it's going to be good to see the bullpen at full throttle again uh, because I really do – I really like how the pieces fit together when you see them all ready to go, all – pitching where they should be pitching. And that is, we assume Romano taking back the ninth, but some of the mix and match we saw with Swanson, Hicks and Mesa over seven, eight, nine, the last couple of weeks can now be over even six, seven, eight, or just seven, eight. And you keep those guys uh, a little better rested. Uh, Chris Black, thanks for taking the time out, man. Enjoy Cincinnati. Uh, I have heard that Skyline Chili is a little overrated. Uh, I thought it was fine. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe you can uh, you can report back on that for us. I just want to see De La Cruz in in, in person. You I are not. Wait. You don't care about Cincinnati style chili. No, not at all. Just no. gonna be. There's not a lot of the, we don't we very like. I mean, for me personally, I'm so tired when I'm working on the road. Food. It's about proximity to where I am. Minimal steps. Minimal minimal time spent. So if you're close to the park, that's where I'm probably going to be. Well, Ellie De La Cruz uh, and the Cincinnati Reds have cooled off pretty dramatically, but still a lot of fun and still in a playoff race. So that'll be a, a tough three set this weekend, tough two set down at Rogers Center. Uh, Chris Black, hope you enjoy it. Hope you get a, a little bit of breathing time here before uh, you take off to Cincinnati. Thanks, buddy. Talk to you soon. Chris Black, producer at Sportsnet, at Down to Black on Twitter. Keep an eye out uh, for his Twitter account for uh, more detail on that Hyunjin Ryu uh, sinker that Chris told us about there. Uh, he'll have a thread out on that uh, a little later. And of course, we'll keep an eye on it next time Hyunjin Ryu takes the mound, which we don't know specifically when that is. The Jays have only announced that it's Kikuchi and Gosman uh, for this two-game set. If everyone just next man ups it, it would be Brios Bassett Ryu in Cincinnati, we assume anyway, we will see those three guys in some order, which then sets the Blue Jays up fairly nicely to have Kikuchi and Gosman start the first two games against the Orioles next week. That's still, 
you know, assuming things go reasonably well over these five games, that's still a pretty important series uh, for any hopes of winning the American League East. And I think it's uh, an interesting note that it would be Kikuchi Gosman starting that one off. Maybe they juggled the order or something like that, but the way things line up, um, because yeah, I think Baltimore is one of the matchups that if you're looking ahead to who you'd start of the five starters in a playoff series or in a wild card game or something like that, uh, the Orioles are a team as a team that skews a little lefty heavy in a ballpark that suppresses right-handed hitter power. That to me is a Kikuchi matchup more than uh, maybe any other team you could see in the American League playoffs. Uh, Houston, I think, would probably be at the bottom of the Kikuchi matchup, just given that they are very heavy on righties and heavy on righty power. So that'll be something uh, fun to watch over these next six, seven weeks or so as we get ready for, we hope, playoff baseball with the assist from Samad Taylor last night, making that slightly more likely. The Fangraphs playoff odds currently giving the Blue Jays a 68 0.7% chance to make the playoffs. Yusei Kikuchi has been a big part of that. Michael Bauman of Fangraphs wrote about Yusei Kikuchi last week. Let's take a break. Let's talk to Michael next on Jay's Talk Plus on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Yusei Kikuchi taking the hill tonight against the Philadelphia Phillies. A gentleman who knows a little something about both of those things is Michael Bauman of Fangraphs. Michael, how are you? Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am excellent. I got to ask you before we talk Phillies, Jays, why is the SEC trying to ruin college sports and why are you so in favor of it? Well, I mean, as a proud South, well, proud-ish anymore, South Carolina grad, I think everybody else needs to get less broke if they don't want the <laughs> SEC to rule college sports. Uh, but I wrote about this at great length on, on Fangraphs on Monday. So if you want to uh, know how conference realignment is shaping the future of college baseball, uh Please, please read that. Yes. So thanks for giving me the chance to plug that. Please, please do. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it's a lot to sort through, honestly. Uh, the Pac-12 dying as it is uh, and the the kind of power struggle with the SEC at the very tippy top of it. Um, so definitely go there, read a little bit more. It'll definitely have an impact on future draft classes and things like that. Um, Michael, it's been a busy time around the Philadelphia Phillies coming out of the trade deadline here. There's obviously the Michael Lorenzen cool debut and the no hitter, but also did we find out that Aubrey Plaza is low key, a Philly super fan? Well, I found that out. I think that was common knowledge uh, to begin with. I didn't know that either until you pointed it out. Yeah. Well, I pointed that out and then uh, I got a lot of people in my mention saying, didn't you know that Aubrey Plaza was from Delaware? I was like, no, you know, I'm, you know, I watched Parks and Rec, but I would say I'm, you know, there are definitely people who are more interested in her than (laughs) than I am, but it's always interesting to find out that I don't know what the Canadian equivalent of being from Delaware is, but it's weird. I think it's being Canadian. Is it? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's like, Canada is like Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, and then everywhere else would be a Delaware. And I don't mean to disparage any of those other places. Just, you know, the population wise, we're pretty heavily concentrated to a couple spots here. Yeah. 
So, I don't, you know, this is like very small Manitoba or something. There you go. I don't know. Yeah, Winnipeg. You know, you get your odd Chris yeah. Jericho or Rowdy Roddy Piper from there, uh, but that's uh, that's about it. Okay, so in seriousness, the Phillies have, you know, turned it on a little bit here since since the deadline. Uh, took a couple against the Royals, had a really good series against the Nationals, maybe a little less so on the weekend after that big outburst against the Twins. But generally speaking, things seem to be going in the right direction, and they are a team some Somewhat similar to the Blue Jays, where at least offensively, we've all been waiting for things to click and for guys to start playing as we expect them to play. Uh, the Phillies being in a playoff position here, having a couple games uh, of edge in the wild card, being so far behind the Braves. Where are you at just in terms of where this Phillies team stacks up and, you know, where the obviously the focus needs to be on being the, the best in October, but more specifically where you're looking for signs that this Phillies team could be a threat in the playoffs. Well, I think that's where the, what they've done over the past week or so has come in. The, the, I guess headline thing about this team was supposed to be the hitting for power. And Bryce Harper has not done that this season. You know, Trey Turner struggles have been well-documented. Kyle Schwarber's you know, run hot and cold. Uh, what has kept this team afloat has been one of the best pitching staffs in baseball. And I think that's always been underrated about this team, but they had a great rotation to begin with. Uh, that was aided by the emergence of Chris Sanchez. I think it's a legit MLB starter. And now the acquisition of Michael Lorenzen, who's been incredible uh, since the trade. And now in the past week or two, Turner's gotten hot. Uh, Schwarber's really turned it on. And that's even, you know, Bryce Harper's sort of day-to-day with a bat thing right now. Brandon Marsh is on the aisle. So things are not completely clicking yet, but once the offense gets going, I think this is a really dangerous team that's really well-built for October. And I think having a couple games worth of uh, worth of cushion will do this team a world of good because they've got a lot of guys, I think up to and including Harper, who had, I, I'm going to say this and it's going to sound like it's going to sound like something other than what I mean, they tend to try too hard when things aren't going well. Mm. And so just having, having the ability to, to, you know, it's, and we see, you know, that can be good or bad. You know, we see how well these guys played in the playoffs last year, but just being able to, to calm down and sort of let the game come to them, which they will be able to do if they maintain this lead in the wild card. And I'm not really inspired by a lot of the teams that are chasing them, to be (laughs) completely honest. Uh, yeah, I, I think we'll we'll see this team continue to round into form at, at the right time. So, you know, and some of that, you know, I'll be completely honest, they played a really weak schedule last week. Uh, they beat up on a lot of bad teams, but also that's what you have to do. So I think that this will be, you know, this test against Toronto will be, uh, a good look into what we can expect from them. Yeah, and there, look, in, in what you just said there, there are some real similarities to what the Blue Jays have gone through. A pitching staff that has done everything they can to keep a minute, uh, a bunch of hitters who are under, maybe not disaster seasons, but underperforming where we expected. And yeah, you talk yeah. about trying to do too much. These two teams rank 23rd and 24th respectively, hitting with runners in scoring position uh, by weighted runs created plus. So good offensive teams that otherwise struggle in big spots. Um, when you look at you, you mentioned Sanchez there and him emerging as a legitimate major league starter. The Phillies have decided here with for this next little stretch, at least to turn to a six man rotation. Now we know that that's aimed at things like, Hey, let's make sure everyone's in good shape. Come October. There is a Taiwan Walker component to that. There is Michael Lorenzen having just thrown infinity pitches to get a no hitter. Um, what do you like or, or where are your concerns about turning to a six man for the next little bit here for Philly? 
Well, I like it because it's something that they can sort of dial up and down because not just uh, Sanchez, but Lorenzen has recent, uh, and Ranger Suarez too, for, mm-hmm. for that matter, has recent experience being sort of like a multi-inning uh, relief guy. You know, I think the smart thing about the six-man rotation uh, is you look at what happened to them down the stretch last year, and it's interesting we see this every World Series, that there are pitchers who have been lights out all playoffs, and then like it's sometimes it's literally game six or seven of the World Series where they just completely run out of gas, where it's just too much. And that happened to Zach Wheeler last year. So I, I wonder if, if some of this is to take – maybe 5% of the workload off of guys like Wheeler and Nola, who they're going to need if they're going to make another uh, run to October. You know, it allows them to, to keep Sanchez uh, in the rotation, keep his, his confidence up. You know, it, it allows them to maybe take a little bit of heat off of Suarez uh, and Tyron Walker, who've dealt with, you know, sort of minor, um, minor injuries throughout the season. So if you have that kind of depth, I think that's a, a smart thing to do. We'll see how long they stick with it, though. Uh, what did you make of Zach Wheeler's comments about like, hey, man, uh, I don't really like this. My ERA is way better when I'm on normal rest. And I'm paraphrasing here, but his ERA is almost yeah. a run better on normal rest versus extra rest. But there is that component of, yeah, you ran out of gas a little bit last year and he'd he'd had the IL stint last year, too. So maybe wasn't a, a thousand percent. But a guy like Wheeler and we've heard similar from Chris Bassett here in Toronto where, yeah, he's he's been pretty honest about the toll of the Jays first going to a four man rotation for a bit and then to a six-man rotation uh wheeler in particular what do you make of his thoughts that he'd rather be and now i'm quoting directly 80 percent on four days rest versus uh you know a little better rested but uh but not in his routine uh start so nobody loves routine more than starting pitchers yes. uh, you know they're all they're like cats in that respect like if, you, if anything is off you know they're, you're going to hear about it and so i i understand where he's coming from and i think that uh you know that's an important factor to to put into or an important um uh bit of information to factor into this decision but at the same time you used to hear the same thing about the shift you know you get guys who uh, pitchers who just refuse to pitch in front of the shift and and they would watch uh as long as you know five ground balls got through the the normal defensive alignment uh they were fine but if one got through the shift it would just completely throw off their swerve um what i'll say to that is that uh rob thompson the phillies manager his big strength is keeping everybody uh on side and you know i don't think it's a, a bad thing that that Wheeler speaking his mind about this as long as he just goes out there when he's told to and, and pitches well. Uh, and I think that's one of Thompson's strengths is, is getting everybody to buy into uh, what the team is doing. You know, we see this in, in, com- in comparison to maybe somebody like Aaron Boone, who struggled to do that in the past few playoffs with, with his pitchers. So, um, you know, I, I think the important thing is, they're not going to go to a six-man rotation in the playoffs. And if they do start to lose ground against teams like the Marlins, they're obviously going to go back and throw Wheeler more. So this is just something they're taking the foot off the gas a little bit while they they think they can get away with it. Uh, and once crunch time comes, Wheeler's going to have more innings than uh, than he knows what to do with, I'm sure. And he's been, hey, just about the most consistent and reliable pitcher in baseball over the last four yeah. years or so since signing there. So uh, nobody, very few guys you, you'd be ready to trust more with that than Zach Wheeler. Um, 
so the Jays were operating six-band rotation themselves. Initially, when we lined that up here, we thought, hey, it was a real question about who would come out of that rotation when they were done the 17 games in 17-day stretch. Hyunjin Ryu just coming back. Maybe he's not a 1,000%. Alec Manoa coming back from his stint in the minors. Maybe things would click it and he'd get right. And hey, maybe Yusei Kikuchi will do what he did last year, go to the pen like you're talking about with guys like Sanchez and Suarez and Lorenzen who have so much playoff utility if they can comfortably move to the pen and give you a couple innings. But it turns out Kikuchi's just been too damn good for that and has really established himself in this Blue Jays rotation. He is someone you wrote about at Fangraphs last week, a piece called Yusei Kikuchi is keeping the ball in the yard for a change. Uh, I have a couple things I'd love to ask you from that piece, but at a, you know, at the highest level, what has stood out to you most about Yusei Kikuchi's turnaround here in 2023 and especially lately? Yeah, so this first season in Toronto, the two. So this piece actually came out of the last time we talked. I was uh, a couple of days later. I was looking for something to write about, I was, and I was like, I didn't have a great answer when you asked me about that. So I'm going to figure out what's actually going on. Um, so you know, I guess the moral of that story is I take requests. Um, but but Kikuchi was doing the the two things that you don't want to do as a pitcher: he's walking guys and giving up home runs. And that's you know, SIP, which goes into to our version of WAR. Uh, is very concerned with those very basic things, you know, the two things you want to avoid at all costs. And Kikuchi was doing them more than any other starting pitcher in baseball, in some cases by a huge margin. And now he's got the walks under control, and he's, I mean, I think it's like five starts in a row now. He hasn't allowed a home run, which is shocking, you know, for what he was doing as recently as this spring. Uh, So I dived into how his pitch usage has changed, you know, his release point a little bit. And what he's doing is, throwing two distinct flavors of breaking ball. And this is a guy who changes his repertoire year to year. Uh, I'd say more than most pitchers in baseball, maybe not more than any. And what he's got this year is a, a hard upper 80s slider uh, and a slow lower 80s curveball. And this is different from the sliders and curve. Both of these pitchers are different from the sliders and curveballs he's thrown at the pe- in the past. And he's just getting a lot more pop-ups. He's getting a lot more weak contact of guys getting under the ball. Um, this is something that you don't think of, of pitchers using breaking balls uh, to induce weak contact uh, in the air. Uh, you know, we think of inducing weak contact as like a two-seamer sinker changeup thing, uh, and you try to get it on the ground. And if you try to get pop-ups, that's a lot of fastballs up in the zone. And this is something that we're seeing. We're learning you can get away with this. I wrote about Andrew Abbott from the Reds a couple uh, a couple weeks ago doing the same thing. Uh, using the his breaking pitches to get weak contact in the air, and that's a lot of what Kikuchi's doing. Uh, you know, I, I won't read the uh, the charts that I put in there on, on the radio, but basically he's getting you know uh, hitters getting under the ball about a quarter of the time this season, which is uh, a, just a huge um, uh, huge upgrade from what he was doing as recently as earlier this season. You can see the. The home run rate, the hard hit rate on fly balls declining month by month. And so I couldn't identify like a pitch usage thing that changed around the end of May when this hot streak really started. You know, I just wonder if this is just him get, you know, developing that repertoire early in the season, finally getting comfortable with it, learning how to execute it. Uh, or if it's something else that, that doesn't show up in the, in the underlying numbers. But he's definitely a, a different pitcher to what he was last year. 
Certainly. And you look, if we look at the monthly trends and things like that, the, the way you cut it up with the lack of hard hit in the air, if we want to use FIP, which is the home run strikeout walk focus one, if we want to use expected ERA, which is the stack gas one that takes a little more hard hit and things like that into account, they have all trended pretty consistently and pretty uniformly in the right direction. So some, uh, some room for confidence there, uh, Michael, before I let you go here, I wanted to ask you about uh, one other one that you wrote about recently, and it's not Jay's Phillies related, but it is germane to the American league playoff situation. Shane McClanahan potentially done for the year. Uh, the Rays have come back down to earth over the last couple of months as it is um you know they they had cooled off dramatically offensively and and now they lose one of their most important pitchers in a staff that already didn't have uh, a lot because of injuries and even after the Aaron Savale acquisition uh do the Rays have enough you they're probably going to make the playoffs just by how big a margin they have but come playoff time uh how big a hit is the McClanahan injury to any confidence you had in the Rays it's, I mean, it's big. You know, no team is going to lose basically their best starting pitcher and just keep on ticking over. It's, it's huge. But the Rays, this is something the Rays have dealt with before, and that was sort of the thrust of, of uh, my article. You know, they are very good at developing pitchers, but those pitchers tend to get hurt a lot. They get road hard and put away wet. And that, in, you know, there are things you can do to pitchers that take a toll on them other than running up huge innings counts. And so they've had to deal with this with Blake Snell, with Tyler Glasnow, with, with uh, Yanni Chirinos, uh, you know, basically, you know, Shane Baz, who's on the, um, the aisle recovering from Tommy John surgery uh, from last September. So they can pitch around it. They still have um, uh, Aaron Savali, like you said, uh, Zach Eflin, ex Philly, has been outstanding this season. He's he avoided a minor injury scare. Uh, Glassnow's back and pitching well, so they can weather this. It's just going to be tough. And now you know we all are not really sure how to talk about the Wander Franco mm-hmm. situation, but that's another thing that's you know if you just want to look at on field impact, like he's one of their best hitters, and so they're they were trending in the wrong direction to begin with, and now these things coming one by one. I think that you know. This is still a really good team. This still has it still has enough starting pitching and a, a savvy manager that can you know, conjure innings out of uh, out of these guys. So I think they're still dangerous, but it's hard to you know, I don't know how you look at this as anything but a huge negative. Yeah, it's a, it's unfortunate uh, for the pitching side of that. And Wander Franco, of course, placed on the restricted list by Tampa Bay uh, yesterday, and we'll continue to monitor that one. Uh, Michael Bauman, thank you, Bauman. Sorry, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, taking the time out this morning. Keep up all the great work at Fangraphs. All right, thank you. Michael Bauman of Fangraphs. Uh, you can go check that Yusei Kikuchi piece out. Uh, check out all his great work. If you are at all interested in college baseball or even the impact that things like conference realignment will have on how we draft prospects and how I'd imagine prospects will be heavily concentrated to power conferences, a couple of pieces there worth a look. Uh, the Pac-12 is dying. What does that mean for college baseball? Uh, again, the Kikuchi piece as well. Some stuff on McClanahan and uh, the Rays rotation question marks headed into the playoffs. In addition to the other uh, Rays question marks right now that we will uh, let the process play out on. But Wander Franco on the restricted list until further notice. Um, Jays. Phillies tonight. It's Zach Wheeler against Yusei Kikuchi down at the ballpark. 7 p.m. start. I'll be on the call with Ben Schulman if you're listening on the radio side. Uh, TV side has it for you as usual. Reminder that tomorrow's TV broadcast will also be uh, the annual Sportsnet Jays Care broadcast auction presented by TV TD. So uh, lots to 
bid on and as we raise money for the Jace Care Foundation there. So keep an eye out uh, on social media, on the television broadcast, things like that for more details there. Marchese and McKee are coming up next. Blair and Barker have you five to seven. If you need a little bit more Jays Phillies tee up, they'll also have Jays talk for you uh, post game. Thanks to Caitlin McGrath, Chris Black, Michael Bauman, Jonathan Mayo for coming on today to Jeff Lance and Jennifer behind the glass. Uh, this should be a, a fun one. I haven't done a game down at the park in a little bit here. So hopefully the, the sun sneaks out and we get an open dome. I'm, I'm going to be selfish and wish that for myself. I think we'll also get a flurry of Blue Jays updates a little later as well. Chapman and Jansen have been banged up. Get the extra day off. Jordan Romano potentially back tonight. Kevin Kiermeyer, Trevor Richards, Bo Bichette all inching closer to their returns whether that's today whether that's friday whether that's uh, next week for the baltimore orioles the jays using these three off days in an eight-day stretch to get a little healthier uh and yeah pivot back to a five-man rotation the ace yusei kikuchi gets it started tonight at rogers center we'll talk to you at 10 a.m tomorrow on sports radio network and sports at 360.